0: Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford.
1: With me, as always, is my brother, Jeff. Jeff, how are you today? I am doing great, you know, this whole July. If you look in my eyes, you can see the the American flag waving, Michael. <laughs> Absolutely, always. Uh,
0: just, just, just a twinkle in there. Absolutely. And, and it's so fitting that we're going to talk again. I feel, you know, every July comes around. We're feeling the patriotic spirit, and we're going to do it again this year. But I feel this episode comes with lots of um, prior listening opportunities if you look
1: back through our catalog. That's true. You know, this theme, uh, we always work on themes. This one is probably one we've done the most, and it is the it harkens back to. The beginning episode of the second generation of the Progress City Radio Hour, episode four.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The very first episode was a 4th of the July episode. And I think it just ties in well with the spirit of Walt and the spirit of all the projects he tried to kick off in the parks over the years. But yeah, we started, we've talked about Liberty Street at Disneyland. We've talked about Liberty Square at Walt Disney World, the Hall of Presidents. Uh, We've talked about a lot of things, but today we're going to talk about kind of the big kahuna in these regards, and uh, that's The American Adventure.
1: Yes, this one is an all-time classic, one of the rare places you can go in Epcot and see it almost exactly how it was on opening day, more than anywhere else, A, a show that was so ahead of its time that it still blows minds today with its technological wizardry and just uh, so much thought into it and such a pedigree of Walt, even though he wasn't directly involved in it. uh, You know, Walt really loved talking about American history and wove it into a lot of what he did. And so it has his DNA right there in Epcot yeah i mean when you think about it it's really a natural progression from his
0: ideas for you know, the hall of the declaration of independence and the hall of presidents and all, all of those projects and it just evolved over time but you know as you were saying that i was thinking you, we're going to talk about it in a little bit but one of the other hosts considered for this pavilion was will rogers and you know walt disney and will rogers were friends they played polo together so it's <laughs> Odd to think
1: about the the connection really is that close over time. Yeah, it is. And uh, this, this was always kind of very early on kind of a core of, of what they were going to do with Epcot or World Showcase. And in all the different eras of it, there was some kind of show on American history. This was kind of a cornerstone of what they were doing there. And it ended up being an anchor on the other side of the park. Absolutely. It really
0: the centerpiece of World Showcase, holding, holding down that side of the park. And what became really a huge selling point of the park in its early days, when you think about how they promoted the park, how they introduced the park to the world, they always leaned heavily on American Adventure. They did. Uh, and, right and right not from- so, <laughs> Yeah, rightfully so. Uh, not only from content, but for, uh, the technological aspect of it. You know, the Ben Franklin walking animatronic was a huge deal that they talked about so much in sort of everything it would get a mention. And Ben Franklin even walks. You know, that would be on every newscast.
2: So right. it,
0: it was a really big deal, and it it continues to be a big deal today. So it's exciting to talk about. What, what else are we going to bring up today?
1: We're going to talk a little bit, you know, we've been talking about sponsors and these pavilions and World's Fairs. This time, we're going to take a little bit of a different track, and we're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. at the World's Fairs and beyond, and kind of how they changed telling their story uh, throughout the years of the World's Fairs, in and out of the World's Fairs, and into some pageantry, kind of what led the road to the American adventure in the outside world. Yeah. The American adventure is not sort of an anomaly that came out of nowhere. It is a
0: sort of, when you look at the whole progression of these things, it's a very, I
1: don't know, traceable evolution. Yeah. I feel like it's linear, but yes, we're going to do a little bit of that. And of course,
2: uh,
1: Michael, the American adventure, isn't the only thing there, the, the attraction, you've got your funnel cakes and cookie face (laughs) You've got, uh, you know, some fountains, and there's some other stuff we should talk about, right? It's especially a little entertainment act.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A a really just fundamental aspect of the American Adventure Experience, the Voices of Liberty, those, uh, you know, stalwart pre-show entertainers that have been there for since the very beginning, really. And we're going to look at how they came to be, how they came to Walt Disney World, and sort of their legacy
1: over the past 41 years now. Yes. uh, An all time great Disney act still in existence. Well, you know, I've just finished up a huge meal at the Yakitori house, (laughs) checking out the waterfall in Japan. I've made my way kind of ambling over to the American adventure. I'm very full. Um, I think it's time to kind of have a seat and, and start telling this story. What do you think? Absolutely. Let's put on our rose colored bifocals and uh,
0: see what the American Adventure has to offer.
2: At the
1: beginning of the Great World's Fairs in the 19th century, the United States was a fixture, and it would go on to host a few of their own, as we well know by this point. And over the time period that the World's Fairs were becoming a global phenomenon, the United States completely transformed as a country, as did the way it told its national story both domestically and abroad. It started off meekly enough at the Great Exhibition in 1851 in London. The U.S. had the third largest exhibition space, behind Great Britain and France, They didn't have anything to fill it. Well.
2: Beside great nations on display was little old upstart USA. So proud to have the whole world see examples of the Yankee ingenuity. The Reaper by McCormick. The Revolver by Cole.
1: False Teeth by Gum. These fairs were showplaces of innovation and culture, and the U.S. seemed to lean early on only into the innovation side, and for good enough reason. They were quickly becoming the world leader in various industrial inventions and techniques. But the U.S. did not pay for their delegation to make it to the fair in 1851, and so the exhibition space was a little roomy. But participation would not be a problem in the 1876 fair.
2: One hundred years of of liberty liberty, America went on a spree (laughs) The famous statue friends had planned was still unfinished, so they sent a hand. (laughs) Ulysses Grant turned on the steam for power was that great fair theme on alex bell's first telephone this simple phrase became well known sorry number.
1: i love that uh that special i'm so glad we got to work that into the show finally <laughs> <laughs> so pleased
0: yeah. so please it really calls out for uh making gifs animated gifs
1: of uh, yes probably. that's a good idea yes Uh, Yeah, well, the world's fairs at this point were truly a gigantic trade fair by and large, but visitors to the centennial exhibition would witness America beginning to look backwards as well as forwards as it was celebrating the centennial of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It's so odd to think of this fair coming just 10 years after the Civil War. In fact, a lot of southern states didn't participate for various reasons, mostly, I think, because they didn't have any money. But, you know, there were other reasons, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. yeah it is odd because you think of i don't know it's almost like
0: this is the beginning of the modern world that's and right and a vast gulf of you know, between the civil war and between this sort of industrial
1: forward looking thing right right yeah it's amazing how quickly they were america was changing uh, and the world was changing but america was becoming a new nation and While we see visitors to the fair participating in the age of invention with me telephone and all the other inventions that would one day make their way into the American adventure and climbing into the unfinished Statue of Liberty's torch, guests could also see some historical content. Now, the Smithsonian Institution did not even have a history collection at this point, which I couldn't believe. So the U.S. Patent Office held some relics of George Washington's that were put on display, including uniforms and effects from the battlefield. The Patent Office also held the Declaration of Independence at this time, and the Declaration would make a very rare trip outside Washington to be displayed in the Independence Hall for the duration of the fair. So, oh, That makes me nervous to even think about. I know. <laughs> I mean, there's many perils along that trip. Reading about the history of the Declaration of Independence made me think of you a lot because of all <laughs> all the peril involved, but... One of the things I couldn't believe was, you know, in the early days to make copies, they would just wet it and just put another piece of paper on top of it. So it would just take away the ink, some of the ink. What? Oh, like-
0: God. It just <laughs> fills me with anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> nightmare.
1: Ay, ay, ay. It's like p- silly putty. Right. Oh, boy. Certainly one of the most memorable and influential exhibits showcasing history at the fair would be the New England Farmer's Home and Modern Kitchen. Here, a colonial kitchen would be juxtaposed with a modern kitchen to both showcase new technologies and look back upon the virtues of the past. I imagine this would be a display that would really speak to Walk's heart. It's like the Carousel of Progress meets the Hall of Presidents. I mean, yeah,
0: it is odd to think of. You know, something that was so, so long ago, this fair, but all these other things were even a century in the past to them. It was a long time ago for them, too. So that's kind of odd to think
1: about. Right. Right. Throughout various state buildings and interior displays, the historic nature of these remembrances of the colonial way of life. Would give rise to the colonial revival, a major trend in architecture that would spread well into the next century, and especially around academic institutions, public buildings, and homes, and particularly uh, at our college, uh, the University of North Carolina, a big colonial revival place uh, among many. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The 1876 fair would also affect the way Americans celebrated holidays and special civic occasions. At this time, the Fourth of July ceremony would include oratory, perhaps the dedication of a memorial, and according to a North American review at the time, was, quote, insufferable from incessant detonations, fraught with reckless tomfoolery, and desecrated by rowdyism. (laughs) So about the same as today. Right, right. To fight this rowdyism with the drinking and the fireworks, cities began to crack down and encourage theme parades in larger cities with different neighborhoods, recreating their history or displaying exotic themes or mardi gras a lot which doesn't seem like a way to cut down on rowdyism by the way really and many scenes of these were presented in the tableau vivant style which was coming into fashion towards the end of the century uh, think one grecian urn michael indeed as well as the <laughs> blue family pageant yes yes <laughs> Why was the tableau vivant a thing? I I don't know. Oh, that is true.
0: One Grecian urn. Yes. Everybody just gazes in awe and claps politely.
1: Uh, Cities encouraged historical groups and elite members of society to participate in order to encourage civility and accuracy. The Elizabethan pageants that were in vogue in England at the time were suggested to be brought over to the States, using a colonial backdrop to be uniquely American. Early efforts at meshing all this together included Providence's 1896 production of Rhode Island Days of Old Lang Syne, presented by the Daughters of the American Revolution and the Society of Colonial Dames of America, (laughs) including 12 scenes of Rhode Island history presented in Tableau Vivant style. The next year, a similar production called Old Plymouth Days and Ways would be presented in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and the era of the historical pageant would be underway. Oh, man. Just imagine the productions involved in... You know, the, the characters involved in these productions. Oh, I'm sure it's straight out
0: of River City. You're right. This is exactly <laughs> what they were doing.
1: These pageants would become very popular and represent an interesting alliance between the historical society, members of high society, playground associations, which were advocating for recreation and healthy child development and playgrounds, and various progressive groups such as women's rights advocates. The Playground Association would advocate for a, quote, safe and sane July 4th, claiming it was at present a day of terror, anxiety, and dread. <laughs> Planners of events, wow. such as Father Knickerbocker's birthday party in New York, <laughs> thought that learning older activities and dances would awaken children's curiosity and history while participating in wholesome play. I think of, like, the stick and the hoop. I mean, maybe they did that. Oh,
0: this is pure stick and hoop territory, definitely. Yeah. Balling
1: cup. Right, right. Oh yeah. Gosh, the elusive balling cup. Uh, these pageants would get more and more lavish into the twentieth century and become highly localized in their subject matter. The local pageants told a town's history to establish a civic identity in a rapidly growing country to become aware of traditions and how those traditions must be used and adapted to face current struggles. On balance, these pageants were surprisingly very progressive at times, which I couldn't believe. At least they had progressive ideals. One of these ideals, the melting pot concept, which wouldn't be particularly called progressive today, was constantly hit upon, where various ethnic groups were presented as all living in harmony within the whole of the community. The same occurred with factions such as labor and capital being brought into harmony by characters such as the spirit of community, so... A lot of grandiose thinking and um, hopeful thinking about harmony.
0: Uh, yeah, which is uh, pretty progressive these days, I think. Uh, I wish we had done these sort of living tableaus and pageants in our uh, the neighborhood where we grew up. Because we had a, a Fourth of July parade yes. and, uh, in our neighborhood and went down to the little park. And uh, uh, we we needed a pageant. and It Donald would have Edmonton. been a
1: great place for a pageant, I think. Yeah. Right. And the, then like a place where you could get big slabs of cake. Well, yeah, right, of course.
0: <laughs> and corn.
1: Yes, corn on a stick, or just, you know, however you have it. Uh, it'll probably come as no surprise that at, at this time, black people were mostly left out of the pageant world, which led W.E.B. Du Bois to write his own pageant called The Star of Ethiopia, which was performed in 1913 in New York City. This was an epic production that followed history through the rise of civilization in Egypt to slavery and emancipation. And surely one of the most lavish productions was the Pageant and Mask of St. Louis, which cost around $125,000 to produce and had a cast of 7,000 people. Oh, wow. The theme of this pageant was the fall and rise of social civilization from the fall of the ancient mound builders. And the rise of modern civilization. The pageant played over four nights to 100,000 people per night in 1914. Good grief. It's wild, wild pictures from that of this giant amphitheater full of people um, and all kinds of great. I mean, 7,000 people in the cast is wild. Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, soon after the pageant and mask of St. Louis, World War I would begin, and as the specter of war hung over the U.S. pageants became more nationalized and patriotic. Frequently, scenes of Washington crossing the Delaware and other historic vignettes would be presented in order to bolster a sense of national identity and values. But as the war waned, the group of artists, historians, composers, rich people, progressives, and others would splinter somewhat into different interests and leave the pageant less than its glory years. Still, the historical pageant would go on, and outdoor drama, which was its spiritual successor, would really take off where we are from. And again, University of North Carolina had a department of outdoor drama and sent off all kinds of people to do these things, and there's a lot of great outdoor dramas in North Carolina that are kind of the heir of these pageants.
0: I was trying to explain to someone recently who was visiting our state that we had an oddly high number of outdoor dramas mm-hmm. a very high quality outdoor dramas across the state it's very cool
1: yeah it's because a lot of these pageant people uh coalesced at, at unc and started a little part of the drama school about it so mm.
0: that's so wild
1: Film was becoming more and more important during this period and on the heels of the dubious American history film The Birth of a Nation, noted director D.W. Griffith decided to take on the American history story in 1924 with America, a film requested by the Daughters of the American Revolution that would be screened by the U.S. Army for recruiting. This film, although a flop due to its enormous budget, would signal a trend of exploring history through the silver screen. For the elite, a new passion of embodying the ethics and traditions of a lost age was found in historic preservation and recreation. For the 1926 sesquicentennial exhibition in Philadelphia, there was a massive pageant named Freedom that would take place on the fairgrounds. But this World's Fair was plagued by backroom dealings and sweetheart deals and couldn't get out of its own way to be successful. Women's groups who had been so instrumental in building their own pavilion in 1876 were asked to take part in the fair but decided to diverge from their previous efforts. Instead, the women decided to present a recreation of a colonial street. This was hoped to remind the fair growers of their civic values, sound familiar, in an age of rampant materialism. It was hoped to offer a note of warning and renewed inspiration. They were inspired by architect Addison Meisner and his Meisner Alley in Palm Beach, Florida, which was a very early attempt at a themed shopping alley in the Spanish Revival style. Of course, uh, mm. Meisner's Lounge at the Grand Floridian, which. Exactly. <laughs> one uh, He seems quite proud of. Yes. But yeah, the Meisner Alley, a really cool place. Very cool. The Colonial High Street would include 22 replica buildings, including the Washington House, Franklin Print Shop, a town hall, and a number of businesses, including a market, bakery, tavern, and so on. 2,400 hostesses would dress in period dress, and guests would be transported into another time with details such as lamps and hitching posts, as well as period recreation antiques populating the land. Gifts sold in the market in various locations would be period-appropriate, too, adding to the immersion. A lot of the presentations, like the colonial kitchen concepts, would juxtapose the life then versus now and try to form a new co-opting of colonial values to combat commercialism and materialism. So that sounds a lot like the Liberty Street concept.
0: Yes, it really, I mean, down to the different kinds of shops they had. Uh, Yeah, very similar.
1: Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, if you listen to our, it's all the way back at episode four, but uh, you can listen to that concept. There was also a tableau vivant uh, or, or something approximating it. Yes. Uh, true. Yeah. In the hall of the Declaration of Independence. So listen back to that if you haven't already. The Colonial High Street would be one of the highlights of the controversial fair. And during the late 20s and 30s, we would see a lot of society types. Go on to champion historic preservation and restoration. A lot of buildings in Philadelphia would be restored during this time. Colonial Williamsburg would begin to be preserved and created as a tourist attraction. And Henry Ford would buy the Wayside Inn and the land around it in Massachusetts with his dream of having a place to move and restore old buildings, eventually, fully realizing this dream at Greenfield Village while creating a nonprofit to manage the inn. When the World's Fair came to New York to celebrate the 150th anniversary of George Washington's inauguration, there would be the future that would be in designers' minds, and indeed, the planners of the fair dictated that all buildings should be designed with futuristic principles. One noted exception would be the Court of States, where various states presented themselves as they saw fit. This would lead to a series of colonial buildings, including recreations of Federal Hall, independence hall and a great combination of new england states with a waterfront colonial street with a ship on display so that's again a little liberty street there just mm-hmm. a tiny little uh, area of that fair very cool washington would be commemorated with a 61 foot tall statue as well as a building in the amusement zone meant to evoke mount vernon with some of those pesky washington relics in it regardless at this time the united states had become a world leader was projecting itself into the future with less attention to the past and the dominant narrative. By 1958, another world war had come and gone, and America was facing a cold war with the Soviet Union, so the story they told at the World's Fair in Brussels would be highly significant to soft diplomacy near the Iron Curtain. While they exhibited the usual and technological wizardry, They did feel a little squeamish in comparison to the Soviets in that regard at that specific time, as the Soviets had launched Sputnik, and the United States was struggling to keep up in the fledgling space race. The U.S. had spent a lot of real estate showing off art, including folk art from the American Indians, and design with the whole pavilion, which at the time was the world's largest circular building, and was quite a striking structure with its bicycle-spoke roof. Walt Disney, of course, came to bat for the old U.S. of A. with a circle vision or circarama show called America the Beautiful, which, of course, would grace theaters in Disneyland and later Walt Disney World. This pavilion looked pretty cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat design. Walt's bit was a hit, but what wasn't was a dubious Eisenhower creation called Unfinished Business. Another exhibit outside the main building that tried to confront the issue of segregation as only Ike and his pals could. Eisenhower was notoriously slow or disinterested in this issue and urged patience for black Americans, while authorities in the South tried to clamp down on preserving Jim Crow in light of school integration in Little Rock. This was so overtly an attempt to try to make good for the U.S. on the world stage, while the Soviet Union continuously mocked the Americans for their awful human rights violations with Black Americans, while they committed some of their own, uh, but this was pretty much liked by no one. It had captions that read with text such as "There's more to it than headlines reporting the setbacks and failures," which I thought was oh jeez. <laughs>
0: Don't the, believe the
1: hype. Things are yeah. great. Yeah, it'll just take time. It's unfinished business. While the exhibit held up the words of Martin Luther King Jr. and acknowledged the wish to abolish the so-called American caste system. There was clearly inertia on the home front, and yet predictably, the Congressional Delegation of South Carolina seemed very displeased when they saw it. Why, this is an outrage! They were very displeased
0: by everything, probably. Right. (laughs) This business is finished.
1: (laughs) For the World's Fair in 1964, the Federal Pavilion, though all modern on the outside, would perhaps do a better job wrestling with the nation's past. Visitors could view The Voyage to America, a film which told the nation's story of immigration, in a 600-seat theater. Afterwards, visitors could ponder challenges to greatness, which exhibited problems facing the United States. I hope this was better than unfinished business. (laughs) Yes. But the Federal Pavilion came equipped with a library and study areas for researchers, which was a pretty great idea. And Upstairs, however, is the most exciting attraction in the pavilion in The American Journey. According to an account from the fair, The tunnel ride combines still photography, film, narration, and music, compressing 472 years of American history into 14 minutes. Fairgoers were ushered into grandstand-like cars that seated 55 people, equipped with individual headsets, and sent through the 1,200-foot tunnel, as hundreds of images of seminal historic events, Ben Franklin's kite, Robert Fulton's steamboat, old-time movies flashed before them. Here is our past. Look at it, the narration began, (laughs) as visitors embarked on the multimedia experience that also offered not just breathtaking scenes of Purple Mountain Majesties and Amber Waves of Grain, but also, as the finale, an imaginary rocket flight into space. Written by Ray Bradbury... Shot in Cinerama and spoken by John McIntyre, the voice of the wagon train, the American journey was a tour de force of equal parts, patriotism and entertainment, man, get me there. That sounds pretty
0: spectacular. Uh, And it it really, you can see in the roots of American adventure that sort of throw everything in the pot style of just a little bit of everything from
1: American history. Yeah, well, and the uh, Ray Bradbury just—I uh, can see him writing, "Here is our past. Look at it." <laughs> exactly, and yelling it at an audience. <laughs> uh, what is it with the moving theater in 1964? It's really the birth of that concept. It just went on. I to know. A- no wonder it showed up so many times in early Epcot planning. Right, it was, it was just in the air. Big thing. Of course, the state of Illinois Pavilion had a bit of history of its own, with the breathtaking great moments with Mr. Lincoln. As we discussed in a previous episode, Walt had bigger plans that Robert Moses desperately wanted. The spectacle called One Nation Under God that one day would become the Hall of Presidents, albeit in a somewhat scaled-down format. One wonders how a full One Nation Under God would have been received at the fair. I imagine it would have been one of the very top attractions of the fair. I mean, it would blown people's mind if they could have pulled it off. Oh, yeah. The way people talked about Lincoln,
0: I'm sure having the full show would have really just done them in.
1: Right. Kids pitching pennies everywhere. (laughs) Right. The most memorable of U.S. pavilions at World's Fairs was the 1967 Montreal Pavilion. It was housed in the giant geodesic dome designed by Buckminster Fuller, which became a symbol of the fair and still exists as a biosphere. This pavilion was so amazing, the sheer scale of it, it was 203 feet high and 250 feet in diameter. A monorail, or mini-rail, passed within the structure, making it the exciting combination of Spaceship Earth and the Contemporary Resort, which, you know, why not? Yeah. America, at this point, was truly flexing in their combination of cultural artifacts, again, some from American Indians, some of a lot of pop culture and rock and roll through a series of giant escalators. To a rooftop exhibit of spacecraft in use, and in the planning stages, it was clear that the United States was a nation leaning forward, now a cultural leader as well as a technological one. And although LBJ after a visit claimed, quote, the homosexuals have had carte blanche, LBJ, the pavilion (laughs) was a major hit and was the third most visited pavilion at the entire fair. So it was huge.
0: Yeah, literally.
1: Literally. Bigger than,
0: bigger than Spaceship Earth. I mean, uh, physically bigger than Spaceship right. Earth. That's remarkable. And
1: just such a cool, such a cool image. Through the 70s, Bicentennial Fever would take hold and Colonial Revival would appear again. We discussed the events of the Bicentennial in a previous episode, particularly in how Walt Disney World and Disneyland participated in it. The Bicentennial was odd and that the U.S. couldn't seem to figure out what it wanted to do to celebrate it in a kind of central Format, they didn't really do anything particularly huge to commemorate the event. Historical displays like the Freedom Train traveled around the country with a speed ramp through a renovated freight train displaying various memorabilia and historic artifacts. The Smithsonian opened their Museum of American History in the 1960s, where guests could interact with pieces of history like the flag that inspired the Star Spangled Banner. The movie, musical 1776, commemorated the signing of the Declaration in Style in 1972. Even Walter Knott built his own Independence Hall in the 60s, along with countless other facsimiles or descendants. Disney's Liberty Square and Hall of Presidents at Walt Disney World would combine some of the appeal of the colonial high street of the 1926 World's Fair with a film and audio animatronic spectacular chronicling the history of American government. But when Epcot arrived, Disney Imagineers had the chance to use all the tools they had developed to make a truly grand pageant of American history that would inspire a new generation of
2: guests.
0: Jeff mentioned over the years, we've taken several looks at Disney's patriotic attractions uh, way back in episode four, as he said, and hard to believe, Jeff, that was three years ago, episode four, when we started this thing back up. Mm-hmm. How, time, how time does fly. It does uh, we, we took a walk down Disneyland's never built Liberty Street. In episode 16, we talked about the development of Walt Disney World's Liberty Square and the Hall of Presidents. And in episode 30, we talked about the early development of Epcot's American Adventure, a wild ride involving everything from Thomas Paine to flying saucers soaring through space overhead. I encourage everyone to go back and listen to those because there's definitely a thread that runs throughout all these attractions. And some of the early concepts for American Adventure were just really bananas. Yeah. this really out there, The whole throwing the whole everything in the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. But even though we talked about American Adventures early development, we never got around to talking about the final attraction itself. And Jeff, there's plenty to say about the show we got. It's really a technical and artistic achievement.
1: It is an amazing show, even now. Uh, I mean, and it's 40 years old and it's still incredible and uh, mostly unchanged. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Over the course of the attraction's
0: development, as described in episode 30, Imagineers whittled down the subject matter it would cover and narrowed down the possibilities for the show's hosts. Eventually, they settled on a trio of hosts, each representing a century of the nation's development. Audio-animatronic figures of these three hosts, Benjamin Franklin, Mark Twain, and Will Rogers, were developed and used to promote the attraction to potential sponsors. They just had this kind of roadshow with three talking heads, they would be like we're going to have a show and talk about this. And some of the lines were pretty much taken from what the final show was of just them bantering, uh, pretty odd, but, uh, yeah, you could go into an office and see them talk. Very return to Oz. Yes, very. That's a good point. Uh, incidentally, newsman, Walter Cronkite was also suggested as a representative for the 20th century. He even toured wed in 1979 to get an overview of the project Although he agreed in principle to take part, for whatever reason, the Imagineers selected Rogers instead, and still unsure of the decision, eventually eliminated the third host entirely. They thought they were too close to the subject matter to make a decision for the 20th century. They thought history would have to decide Smart. who an appropriate host would be. Yeah. According to the show's producer and writer, Randy Bright, the show went through at least six different concepts on its way to reality. Along the way, it grew in complexity. Once they had decided on making a stage show instead of a ride-through attraction, they envisioned a stage that incorporated turntables and a few lifts. So kind of like the little side stages on Carousel of Progress that turn around, those would have little scenes, and then they'd have a few lifts in the middle. But as time went by, the show expanded and the lifts became massive, eventually necessitating a 175-ton scene-changing carriage beneath the stage. This slow evolution in the attraction's numerous groundbreaking systems led to increasing cost overruns and an eventual budget of almost $56 million. Gasp. It's a lot back then. <laughs> a lot back then. Yeah, absolutely. Staging a show of this complexity was one of the greatest creative and technical challenges faced in all of Epcot Center, said Bright. Along the way, Imagineers faced questions about where to start the American Adventure story and what to include along the way through the show. To this end, as with other pavilions, they consulted an outside panel of advisors. Said Bright, Although our show is about America, taken with as much authenticity as could be researched, that's not to say it is American history. It represents some of the great moments and highlights some of the great doers. It's a look at the little people and their contributions to a rapidly developing country, as well as some of the great achievers in history. It's a 100-yard dash capturing the spirit of the country at specific moments in time. So also did the Imagineers believe that they couldn't ignore major issues through the years that questioned America's stand on human liberty and justice. Said Disney, even some of our glorious moments had their lows. Ultimately, they said, the message of the show was that although the American adventure will always be a struggle, if we can apply ourselves in positive ways and deal with reality we can move forward to a better future. It also hoped that by narrowing the focus of the show on certain individuals throughout time, it might inspire us to get involved ourselves to do something in the end said Disney, the show should leave us with the realization that we've been through a lot, but are
1: better for it.
0: That's a good message.
1: Yeah. Just fostering those civic values as always. Exactly. Just like the pageants of old. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. As with all of Epcot's original attractions, extensive research was carried out for the show. In the pre-Google age, Imagineers went to Dr. Alan Yarnell, Assistant Vice Chancellor at UCLA, for advice. They also consulted any number of institutions, including the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian. The attention to detail is admirable. To figure out the actual dimensions of a Revolutionary War cannonball, sculptor Blaine Gibson contacted a historical society in Oklahoma, to gather the relevant information once sponsors coca-cola and american express signed on their vintage ads were researched for incorporation into the show's sets which i had never quite put together but yeah they're
1: they're there yeah it's nice product placement very it subtle. is but yeah. it fits in so well that you don't even yes. think about it yes
0: other obscure details include the unusual presidential seal that fdr used at his inauguration which was duplicated for his podium the type of microphones and radios used in the time depicted and the proper price and color of gas during the great depression and more. So I, you know, it, it would have been hard to research this stuff without the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how much was gas during the great depression? Well, let me <laughs> call the library of Congress mm-hmm. and find That's out the microfilm. Exactly, oh, yeah, but not all of the show was completely accurate. For instance, the phosphorus flash used by Matthew Brady during the Civil War sequence didn't actually exist during that era, but Imagineers decided that it made for a dramatic scene transition, and that, and Disney can never turn down the boy, Right. yeah, so, you, know, you got the have uh the giant snail of the American adventure <laughs> exactly, right, right. While Randy Bright wrote the show itself, much of the dialogue was lifted from real life. Chief Joseph and Susan B. Anthony, for instance, appear in the show and quote their real-world counterparts. Will Rogers' brief comedy bit is compiled from several of the real man's quotes. Figuring out what the 36 audio-animatronic historical figures would say was one thing, but figuring out how they would say it was another. While recordings would exist of more recent personalities, Imagineers had to figure out how to voice those who lived before the advent of sound recording. Again, many different institutions, everywhere from Harvard to the Department of the Navy, were contacted for secondary sources describing the voices of these figures. Also consulted were experts on the individuals in question. From historical descriptions as well as informed speculation, it was decided how the character voices should be cast. And this, oh man, it is here. We should take a moment to talk about the voices in this show. I went down the rabbit hole. I, I spent the whole day on the, down the rabbit hole on this alone because it's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I can't get over it. Uh, this is quite a cast. For starters, we have our hosts. Ben Franklin is voiced by Dallas McKinnon. Now, as a kid, I knew Dal McKinnon as the voice of the spiel for Big Thunder Mountain. He's the wildest ride in the wilderness guy. This is Ben Franklin. Uh, if you look McKinnon up online, he is actually the spitting image of a crazy old prospector. Yes, in is. real life. Uh, but man, McKinnon was so much more. I pulled up his resume and my mind was blown. Uh, just hold on, folks. For Disney alone, he was the voice of Ben Franklin, Big Thunder Mountain. He was Zeke from the Country Bears. He was the deaf ghost in the haunted mansion graveyard. And he was Andrew Jackson in the original Hall of Presidents, wanting to hang the man from the first tree he could find. That's
1: right. We, yeah, we discussed that in our Hall of Presidents episode. I love it.
0: He also did voices for a number of Disney animated films, including Pinocchio, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, Paul Bunyan, 101 Dalmatians, Mary Poppins, and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. He appeared in Disney live-action films, too, including Son of Flubber, The Misadventures of Merlin Jones, A Tiger Walks. The Cat from Outer Space and Hot Lead and Cold Feet. I'll also point out that his vocal work from Lady and the Tramp, where he did the voice of the laughing hyenas in the zoo, has been reused in a number of locations, ranging from It's a Small World to the Scary Jack in the Box from the 2003 film Elf. Wow. That was uh, archival audio of him laughing. It's crazy he was in Pinocchio. That's so old. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, I think he was like donkeys or something, some Hmm. animal voice. His credits are extensive. He was in the Elvis movie Clambake and amazingly was the voice of Gumby, (laughs) like the official voice of Gumby. So that's right, Ben Franklin and Gumby. Uh, For American Adventure, he was also one of the soldiers at Valley Forge. So Gumby served at Valley Forge. Voicing Mark Twain was actor John Anderson, whose filmography isn't as hilarious as McKinnon's, but is unbelievably vast. Not only was he in movies like Psycho, but he appeared in literally hundreds of TV shows, beginning in the 1950s and going up until his death in 1992. And man, if you can think of a show, he was probably in it. And yes, that includes the Disney Anthology program. He was in an episode of that. But man, Jeff, uh, we were fans of the show Voyagers, right? As kids. Yes. Uh, what a great uh, he show. He was Abe Lincoln. He was Abe Lincoln oh, wow. in Voyagers. Wow. Uh, he was in Mannix, Hawaii 5O, the greatest American hero, Silver Spoons, MASH, Square One Television, another favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in Dallas. He was in MacGyver. Uh, he was Larry Appleton's granddad on Perfect Strangers. <laughs> and Jeff, he was in Next Generation. Of course. As Kevin Uxbridge, the old man who lives alone on a planet with his wife, but turns out to be an alien who accidentally wiped out the entire Hooshnok species. Yes. That guy. That guy is our Mark Twain. Wow. And he did FDR as well in the attraction. He played FDR, like did FDR like vocal imitations in other like TV shows and stuff and did it here in American Adventures. Mercy. Uh, then there's Walker Edmiston who plays an angry colonist. He plays Andrew Carnegie. He plays the guy in the rocking chair during the great depression scene. He was also the guy who Marty Sklar occasionally erroneously said voiced the original spaceship earth narration, but that wasn't true. Marty. Anyway, he too had an illustrious, I know Marty, you should know of anybody. He too had an illustrious career as a voice actor and puppeteer from the 1940s all the way until 2007. And also managed to appear in a zillion TV shows. Uh, for Disney, he was in Dumbo Circus, The Great Mouse Detective, Goodbye Miss Fourth of July for the Disney Channel, uh, Dick Tracy, and The Gummy Bears. <laughs> That's an Eisner uh, potpourri for you. It really is an, a post-Epcot Eisner potpourri. Of his many other credits, I will only note that he was the voice of Balok in the original Star Trek show, the triniest swilling alien played by a young Clint Howard. Yes. <laughs> so that's Andrew Carnegie uh, who else well as the town crier the radical revolutionary a soldier in Valley Forge and the depression era news announcer he had, he had multiple roles we have Frank Welker it's the voice of Megatron himself as well as a slew of other transformers uh, for Welker's credits you're on your own Wikipedia says that he has 863 credits as of last year and is the most, or is one of the most prolific voice artists of all time. He's done legendary voice work both outside and inside Disney. But I'll also point out the weird fact that he appears on screen as one of Dexter Riley's friends in both the computer wore tennis shoes, and now you see him, now you don't. Oh wow, that's a, a, a network of connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now we come to a crossroads. I have two internally sourced cast listings for this show. They they differ on some counts. And since we have the case of Thomas Jefferson, who was the voice of Thomas Jefferson, I tend to think it's most likely he was voiced by Robert Easton, which is hilarious. Easton was a renowned dialogue and accent coach who was in a bunch of you know real high-quality stuff, but he also had prominent roles in two horrible movies that appeared on Mystery Science Theater 3000. He was the you're hitting the booze again hillbilly guy in The Giant Spider Invasion, And uh, he was the guy who burns a woman at the stake in the touch of Satan. And to top it all off, he was the Klingon judge who sentences Captain Kirk to prison in Star Trek VI. I guess. (laughs) So with the sparky little little ball thing. So uh, maybe Thomas Jefferson needs a sparky little ball. The other listed voice for Jefferson, which again, I think is less reliable, is Alan Oppenheimer. A man of a zillion credits. He was the voice of Skeletor in He-Man. He was Falcor and the Rock Eater in The NeverEnding Story, uh, which that's I didn't realize were the amazing. same person. He, yes. he was in Freaky Friday, Toy Story 4, pretty much every TV show, and managed to make the Star Trek trifecta of Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. But, oh, wow. Uh, again, yeah, I know. that's That's the triple threat. Again, though, I think it was probably Easton was the actual voice. So you get the picture. Pretty much all of these people had crazy careers and long resumes. Here are a few select mentions. Uh, the Union brother in the Civil War scene was played by Mark Taylor, a prolific character actor who you would definitely recognize. I instantly recognized him when I saw his picture. He was in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and an early episode of Next Generation, as well as The West Wing. Uh, Charles Aidman, who played Paul in the Civil War scene, was on MASH as a commander who was cavalier about sending his men into combat. He also narrated several Disney specials in the 1980s. As Frederick Douglass and the Apple salesman, a dime, we have Al Fan, <laughs> who was in The French Connection and played a congressman who succeeded his wife in office in an episode of The West Wing, which I remember well. Del Bertie played Chief Joseph. He was a Native American actor. He was an extra in The Ten Commandments. Hmm. Uh, Bob Holt, who voiced John Muir, was the voice of Grandfather in Horizons, as well as the Mogwai in Gremlins. Huh. Uh, BJ Ward, who played one of the Rosie the Riveters, had several roles in Horizons. She was the announcer for Mesa Verde in the queue. Uh, she was the mom in Space Dock with the kid who's floating away. And she was the teacher in Sea Castle uh, with the class of diving kids. And. She was Scarlet in G.I. Joe and Princess Allura in Voltron, two formative animation crushes of mine, particularly. Uh, Patricia Paris, the other Riveter, was Lily the Cat in Dumbo Circus and Kanga in a number of Winnie the Pooh shows and videos. Hmm. So it's it's all connected. Uh, Finally, yes, finally, we have Will Rogers, who was portrayed by his own son, Will Rogers Jr. That's cool. And of course, we famously have Imagineer Joe Roddy as Alexander Graham Bell, just in there for the heck of it. Don't forget me, telephone. Don't forget me, telephone. Man, what a cast! It's yeah something else, and so many, oh, so many connections. I couldn't believe what a world of the voiceover actor. Oh, really? Yeah, and just credit after credit, and you know, some of these people. Like the Rosie the Riveter is like continues to work in like video games and stuff and just all these like yeah, they, fall out and all these big video game credits. They
1: go on forever. Yeah. They really. Lose. Yeah.
0: All of these characters could be heard as clear as a bell as the American Adventure was the first Disney show where each audio animatronics figure was equipped with its own individual speaker system instead of running the entire show through the theater system. This allowed the illusions that the figures were actually speaking on stage, which is, you know, very effective when you've got such a big stage.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the cool, unnoticed things about it that is really powerful. And it's kind of realism is that you have that directional speaking. It is cool. Yeah, it it really is. Should also shout out the people who sang in the
0: show. Ali Olmo, of course, sang two brothers. Well, Golden Dream was originally performed by Richard Page and Marnell McCall. Now, I've desperately tried to discover if this Richard Page is the same Richard Page from the band Mr. Mister, who kicked off uh, like at literally the same time as Epcot. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait until we interview someone who worked on the show to find out for sure. One of our uh, uh, Patreon friends, actually, I was, I was talking about this on the Discord, trying to figure this out, and uh, they sent a message to his management. Asking if he was, in fact, the voice of Golden Dreams. So, uh, so maybe we'll find out. You never know. <laughs> All you got to do is ask. That's true. Uh, we should mention that Golden Dream was written by our man, Bob Moline. Yeah. I was happy to shout him out. And the entire show was scored and arranged by Buddy Baker, the great Buddy Baker, who conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra for the recording. The score was digitally recorded, which was a big innovation at the time. And it sounds impeccable because of it. Sounds pretty good. Yep. All of these early animatronic figures were animated, of course, by Davey Feiton. And you can learn more about that in our interviews with him in episodes 57 and 58. The 29-minute show itself was directed by Rick Rothschild. All the attention to historical accuracy combined with the advanced nature of the audio-animatronics figures to make things difficult for the Imagineering costumers. These figures got moved around a lot, and so their clothes had to stay in place and intact. This was especially true of the Benjamin Franklin figure, who famously was the first audio-animatronic figure in a Disney show to appear to walk. This difficult task required breeches that would look normal to guests, while still being flexible and roomy enough to accommodate the animatronic machinery. Said Wethel Rogers, a legend of audio animatronics, to accomplish something like this, we had to push our abilities to the limit. When the process was finished, we had the most complex audio animatronics figure ever built. Speaking about the intricacies of motion they were able to introduce with these figures, Feiton said, these are things that aren't in the script, but they give the figure that extra feeling of life. If you listen to our interview with Fight, you'll hear about some of these technical challenges, including the amazing trick of making the Will Rogers animatronic spin his lasso, which I still can't believe. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some figures' accessories were fabricated and some were found. Disney claimed that shoes worn by the Depression-era banjo player were, quote, found in an old condemned relief mission in downtown Los Angeles. Oh. Which... That seems needlessly grim to me. I, I just get some shoes and, you know, treat them with the old usual care and precision. Right, right. Uh, we went down to Skid Row and found some hobo <laughs> shoes. Uh, I wonder if those are still the same shoes. That's just. So I'm sure they me. probably are. I would assume. Yeah. The unusual scope of the show and its 1,024 seat theater necessitated a large show building. Overall, the footprint was more than 100,000 square feet. Said Rothschild, "Ours was designed and built to house one show and one show only. This enabled us to tailor the building to the show. The pavilion's architectural design was provided by George Terpatsy. Said Terpatsy, If there is any one architectural style that Americans agree embodies the spirit of the American Revolution, it's the imported architectural style of English Georgian developed during the reign of King George III. I started thinking in terms of combining pieces from quite a few periods, ranging from the late 1700s to around 1830 or so. We talked in episode 30 about how the original plans for the pavilion called for it to be housed in a modernist structure on the border of Future World and World Showcase, But eventually it was decided that the futuristic design wouldn't effectively represent that story told inside the pavilion. So it was decided to move the pavilion across the lagoon, where it could act as a lure for guests on the far side of World Showcase, and where its Georgian appearance could blend in with the more traditional architecture of the other Showcase pavilions. A savvy move. Yeah. Terpazzi borrowed a visual trick from Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, to hide the fact that the American Adventure Building was five stories tall and thus out of scale with Georgian architecture. Imagineers created the illusion of a two-story facade, which gives the impression of a low-profile and less imposing structure. Windows on the facade, aside from those of the third-story lounge, are not actual windows, but instead light boxes that have been positioned to further the two-story illusion. This is really savvy, making a five-story building look like it's just two stories.
1: Yeah, and it's very subtle. Um, yeah, great idea. And, it's, and it really works all the way across that lagoon. And you can tell when you're up against it. It's like, uh, this is crazy. Like, this yeah, is the biggest two-story building I've ever been near. Yeah, it's big. Another thing I just
0: thought of, I, I didn't actually see this in my research, but I remember this was like a fact that they would always tell on, like, tours and stuff is you know it has a clock dial on the t- on the tower in the front and roman numerals for the different hours but for the, the number 4 for 4 o'clock mm-hmm. it instead of like the typical roman numeral you would say iv mm-hmm. uh, but it has iiii I, 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 right. which is an unusual thing but it was kind of how during the period represented uh it, it was in vogue i guess yeah to, yeah uh, to put it that way on a clock. It's true. I don't know why that that just occurred to me, but that was always like a weird little fun fact they would drop on people. The building is actually made of brick, around 110,000 bricks, which were manufactured by a company in Georgia and pressed with a fiberglass form to give them the look and texture of vintage bricks. They were then colored and aged to make them look like something right out of colonial Williamsburg. And man, you know, that's pretty... You know, you think of, I, I don't know, all sorts of faux building materials you could use. But, I mean, they they went and got the bricks. Right. They, used, they did it right. It's pretty wild. Inside the pavilion, things were more high-tech. The ever more elaborate staging mechanism eventually evolved into a machine that was situated beneath the audience in order to manipulate the show's 17 scenes. The moving wagon weighs 350,000 pounds and measures 65 by 35 by 14 feet, as long as a boxcar and twice as wide. Ten sets are affixed to this wagon, which moves at the appropriate time so that the proper set can rise to the center stage. Six stationary sets, four on one side and two on the other, rise by themselves or synchronized with a set on the wagon. Support pilings driven nearly 300 feet into the ground and concrete slab floors provide adequate support for all these shenanigans and to make better use of space. Many of the sets mounted to the wagon use telescopic lifts to enable larger size sets that can compact into a reasonably small space. Fit was so tight that there is only a three inch clearance between the wagon and the walls. As it moves, yeah, that gives that gives me anxiety. Yes, it does. <laughs> I'm, like a billion things could go wrong. Yeah, All these telescoping sets. I mean, it's like a transformer. It's Mm -hmm. unbelievable that they got this thing to work. The stage itself is huge as well, measuring 130 by 50 feet. It's about half the size of a football field. At opening, it took more than two dozen computers to control the entire enterprise. Uh, Once cast members pushed the button to start the show, computers controlled everything from the action on and behind the stage to the curtains, theater lighting, and projectors but not all the artistry was high-tech. Around 30 original paintings are featured in the show. Uh, Each took weeks to complete and were done in the styles of the appropriate historical period. At one point, said Disney, it was thought that they might tell the show's story through the use of existing paintings, but artist Clem Hall pointed out that by creating their own artwork, Imagineers could compose their paintings in ways that would allow them to direct the audience's attention, as well as synchronizing better with the show's dialogue. If you pay attention, you might notice that the images projected for each scene are appropriate to the period depicted. Photography, for instance, does not appear in scenes before its invention in the
1: 19th century, and film isn't used until the dawn of the 20th century. That's really so, brilliant. I'm so glad they used their own paintings, because those paintings are great. They're really
0: great, and you know, there's an art program. Clem Hall is one of the great artists, uh, but there were so many more, and so many paintings in the lobby and in the queue area uh by by just these legendary painters and they're they're really fantastic always worth taking a look and if you're traveling with some old imagineer who's in the know they'll point out like who's who you know where herb Ryman pops up in somebody's painting or you know tony baxter's in one of them so uh, you know you need to you need to know someone who knows where All the faces are hidden in the paintings. Uh, In the show's opening scenes, images are projected on a 72-foot wide rear projection screen. The screen, which recurs throughout the show, was at the time the largest rear projection screen ever used. The show, which is now digital, once used 3,300 feet of 70-millimeter film, and it looked great. And it looks great. Outside the pavilion, the symmetrical style of the landscaping was designed to be more formal than its World Showcase neighbors. Four large oak trees were transplanted to the front of the pavilion, two on either side of the water fountain. An old pruning technique called (laughs) pollarding was used on the sycamores in the American Gardens Theater by the Lagoon. Said Disney, the technique involved cutting the tops of the trees thereby filling out the lower branches to provide a shady canopy for guests. Very sad. Man, I love a good
1: pollarding. Yeah. A good pollarding.
0: They're they're always so immaculately trimmed, so that explains that. This enormous enterprise was so costly that it necessitated two corporate sponsors. In the early weeks of 1980, both Coca-Cola and American Express signed on to take part. The concessions for the deal were massive and really sort of changed Disney theme parks for good. Uh, for Coca-Cola, it meant becoming the sole soft drink proprietor for Disney theme parks. No longer could you enjoy a Pepsi at the Golden Horseshoe in Frontierland at Disneyland or see them advertised at the Magic Kingdom's Country Bear Jamboree.
1: They no longer had a lot to give. No longer
0: had a lot to give. No more to give. They're done. Uh, Coke was kind of smug about it too in their little press releases. As oh, well they well. should have been. Yeah. Uh, They were were kind of, uh, yeah, proud of their little Mm -hmm. deal. Uh, For American Express, it meant becoming the official credit card of the Disney parks, which previously had not accepted credit cards, which is just... Hard to believe. Different world. Different world. Yeah. Of course, you could pay with pocket change at that time, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, different world. Uh, American Express Traveler's Checks, spelled C-H-E-Q-U-E-S, of course, also became the official travelers cheque of disney parks and uh, guest rooms on on-site disney hotels were set aside for american express travel customers that was a sweetheart deal also as part of the deal american express sponsored travelport and communicor yes the company's vision of a travel office of the 21st century it was not only a fully functioning booking office for american express vacations but it featured hands-on computerized vacation stations where you could select your preference for a vacation locale and activity and then summon up a color video clip with further information about the destination. It would play off of a laser disc. Travelport also hosted the World Festival Show, a multimedia display on a 14-foot diameter plexiglass sphere depicting the world's vacation destinations. Guests could even stop by to replace a lost or stolen credit card, or even pay their American Express bill, which was brought up multiple times. Like, if you need to pay your credit card bill, stop by Travelport. Please pay your bill. Yes, we're, we're telling you, you might want to check your bill, because uh, it's overdue. Thankfully, unlike many of the other attractions we've spoken about this last year, the American Adventure is still going strong. It's seen some minor changes over the years. The finale film montage of Notable Americans has been expanded and altered several times, and Golden Dreams has been recorded in turn to match the new show timing. But the core of the show is still the same as it ever was, and for that we can be (laughs) grateful. One would be remiss to speak of the American Adventure without talking about the full experience of the pavilion itself. While you're waiting for the epic half-hour attraction, there's plenty to see. The attraction's lobby has lots of details to pour over, from the inspirational quotes from notable individuals that are featured on the walls surrounding the waiting area to the many art pieces on display. The artwork ranges from pieces by Imagineers like Clem Hall, Sam McKim, and Herb Ryman, to outside pros like Robert McCall. Each painting depicts an episode of America's development and a different facet of the American experience. Then, of course, there's the American Heritage Gallery. You know we're big fans of the World Showcase galleries, and thankfully the American Adventure has one of these treasures. The displays, which change every several years, are always focused on a certain theme and feature artifacts from throughout American history.
1: Jeff, you gotta visit the galleries. Got to visit the galleries. And this one always has some really good stuff. It's kind of like Smithsonian level artifacts. A lot of the times, there's just something in there that you'll be like, oh, wow, this is crazy that they have this. And um, yeah, absolutely. And in general, this area is kind of unlike any area I can. I mean, of course, there's like the Hall of Presidents, but the scale of it and the ability you have to find a place and chill out very rare yes
0: in the in the hubbub of world showcase to be able to come in and kind of grab a bench in the corner yes and sort of decompress it's very nice yes and you know plenty to see as I said Uh, then of course there is the corridor of flags which you pass through on the way up the escalators to the second floor Most guests probably pass through here without realizing the conceit of the area, that the 40 flags hanging overhead represent every flag, both foreign and domestic, that have ever flown over American soil, going all the way back to the start. Uh, All but one, that is, in 2015, the flag representing the former Confederate States of America was removed following a mass shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. So the corridor is no longer completely historically accurate, but it is impressive nonetheless. It's fun to go through and, like, pick out the obscure ones and try and figure out what they were for. Right. For many, however, the most memorable part of Waiting for the American Adventure is not what you see, but what you hear. Since 1982, the Voices of Liberty have entertained guests in the rotunda of the pavilion. Under its acoustically perfect dome, the eight-person a cappella ensemble has spent decades performing various patriotic folk and Americana numbers. Jeff, these guys
1: are an institution. They really are. And like you said, it just sounds so great in there. They sound incredible. And there were always these parades that we would uh, listen, you know, watch in the 80s. It had this kind of vocal effect and quality that was just kind of extremely perfect and it just seemed surreal until you would go in and watch the Voices of Liberty do it live. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, I mean, mm-hmm. really one of the most impressive choral groups I can think of. Exactly. I always think of them
0: uh, for the Christmas parade direct, decked in their caroler garb singing exactly. while Brian Mulroney talks to us about something. Or Yes, um- <laughs> yes. You know, a greetings from Canada, from uh, Brian Mulroney, while the Voices of Liberty sing. But yeah, it's a very distinctive sound. Uh, and, you know, as impressive as their 41-year run is, uh, their roots with Disney run even deeper than that. The Voices had their start as a traveling gospel show choir called Regeneration, founded and directed by Derek Johnson. In the early 1970s, they were touring the world playing 500 shows a year to an audience of more than a million people. 500 shows a year
1: seems like a lot. No, thank you. Not, not yeah. for me, uh, but wow, that is impressive. Yeah, that's that's a busy schedule. In 1972,
0: Bob Cross, who was the entertainment director at the Magic Kingdom, heard Regeneration sing at a Rotary Luncheon in Winter Garden. And man, (laughs) can you imagine how swanky that affair was? One of the 500, but yeah, wow. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Bob was impressed with the group, said that they were more Disney than Disney. And he hired the group to come to Walt Disney World for 11 days, performing four shows a day.
1: Yeah, I just can't believe that this isn't a homegrown group. It it is very, very Disney. It is. And it it was a big surprise to me
0: that they were just someone, uh, some People they found elsewhere and brought them in because it really does seem so close to the Disney vibe and aesthetic that you'd think it was just something they came up with themselves. Right. Uh, Carl's had multiple motivations for bringing this group to Walt Disney World. Uh, According to Johnson, the Magic Kingdom's entertainment department had desperately been trying to get operations to build them a stage in front of Cinderella Castle. But, says Johnson, operations thought that no one would want to watch a show in front of the castle, and entertainment wanted to bring someone in to prove that wrong. So, regeneration came to Walt Disney World in 1973 in a show called The Star-Spangled Spectacular. So, no one wants to watch a castle show. What are you talking about?
2: Yeah,
1: man.
0: That's, that was incorrect. Yeah, but I imagine in like 1972, ops had plenty on their plate to be
1: trying to get built still right well and as we see now with all the castle shows they have not exactly the most convenient place to have a show no as far as the traffic flow but the demand is there for the for the people want to see a show yeah (laughs) the demand is there despite
0: all logic saying it's probably not a great place for it yeah right Well, Regeneration appeared in February 1973 during I Am an American Week, (laughs) a tribute to the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. This occasion had been proclaimed by both Orlando Mayor Carl Langford and Florida Governor Ruben Eskew. Many special events were planned during this week-long festival. Regeneration would perform daily at 2, 4, and 7 p.m., and guests enjoyed a special Spirit of 76 parade down Main Street at 5.30. Following the parade, a special flag retreat ceremony was held in Town Square. I Am an American Week continued in 1974, where a special ceremony was added after the flag retreat. At 6 p.m. daily, a full concert band under the direction of Florida Symphony Manager Bob Landers, combined with a choir of over 400 voices, for a salute to our nation, narrated by XPOW pow Major Glendon Perkins of Orlando. The program had previously been presented at Disneyland, where it was awarded the George Washington Honor Medal by the Freedom Foundation at Valley Forge. My. I know, there's these honors pouring in. I want the George Washington Honor Medal.
1: Well, come on.
0: In that inaugural year, Regeneration earned that four-court stage with large crowds that lined up down Main Street. The group came back for several more years doing a patriotic program before Disney put Kids of the Kingdom together. According to Johnson, he was offered for that group, but wanting to move on to different things parted ways with Disney. During his time away from Disney, Johnson did several things, including some writing for Radio City Music Hall, that found him working with none other than Bob Yanni. Ah. There's connections everywhere. Yes, indeed. Johnson also recorded an a cappella Christmas album with Regeneration during that time which again brought him to Disney's attention. With the Christmas album garnering attention, Disney asked him to bring the sound back to Walt Disney World and perform there during the Christmas season of 1977. So Regeneration returned to the Magic Kingdom, performing there as Christmas carolers. After four hours of caroling, they would head to the Walt Disney World village where they would perform three daily sets of the Living Nativity scene where they provided singing and narration. After, I wish I could have seen this. Yeah, I bet that would have been quite a show. Yes. Like, I remember the days when they still did it. And I think we probably walked by it. Like, yeah. I have faint memories of us walking by while this was going on, but I would love to have just gone back and watched it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, after this, regeneration became a Christmas staple at Walt Disney World uh, up until the time when Epcot opened. Uh, In the march prior to Epcot's October 1982 opening, Disney again contacted Johnson saying that they were considering featuring an a cappella group in American Adventure called Voices of Liberty. Uh, Johnson agreed to lead the group. According to him, Disney was unable to find singers of the desired skill set, so he contacted many of the people he had worked with in Regeneration. The Voices of Liberty, he says, was in many ways a grown-up version of Regeneration, Now that they were rooted in one place, the members could settle down and raise families. When the curtain rose on Epcot Center, the voices were there, with Johnson serving as show director, producer, and musical director. While tastes, uh, of course, vary, it's pretty clear that the voices were a better choice for entertainment at the American Pavilion than the other option that was considered, uh, which was cloggers. Oh, of course. (laughs) Can you imagine that under that dome? (laughs) <laughs> uh,
1: thank goodness no
0: Yes <laughs> So yeah I think uh, Voice of the Liberty was the uh, safe pick there Probably And the voices were a hit from the start They helped mollify guests Who were frustrated by the new park's Constant show breakdowns Said singer Cleo Conklin A one of the singer The original singers Who had been a member of Fred Waring's Pennsylvanians
1: Yes the best
0: I'm So excited to see that uh cleo said they told me they don't need to see the show I was talking about the american adventure they were happy just being able to see us that makes us proud what made the group sound significant was that instead of building the sound from the bottom up with the lower registers guiding the way johnson started with the sound at the top the first soprano served as the lead with a, and the lower voices had to match so he that of, makes sense built yeah. from top down
2: yeah
1: it does that that would uh make the different sound make sense you know just a moment for i mean there's so much amazing talent at disneyland back uh, pre-walt disney world but you know when uh, disney world and then epcot open i mean there's some truly amazing musical acts i mean mariachi cobre just mm-hmm. an, an incredible incredible world-class act and and this group is the same i mean just uh, really high standards
0: Yeah. It's like they had had several years of kind of scouting people via Disneyland, and Mm -hmm. then they knew all these people they could just bring to Disney World just right at the start. And like you said, the lineup is just really amazing. It's a great lineup. The group, aside from their sound, they always like to end on an emphatic note as well. One director called the effect 85-103. Uh, they would hit the last chord at 85% volume and then pump it to 103 and add vibrato. Yep. Uh, said singer Debbie Johnson, it's something you can feel from your toes to the top of your head. It's absolutely thrilling and just satisfying and rewarding. They definitely do that. Still. It's it's amazing that you you hear that these tactics that you know so well from listening to them and it's like, yeah, that's an intentional and so mm-hmm. that's a thing that they've done, you know, it's it's their system and once, once you learn about it, you, you're like, yeah, I've heard that like a million times. I know what they're talking right. about. Right. Originally, the group had 16 performers total on the roster. The group performs with eight singers at a time with a ninth person serving as the lead. This vocal captain calls the show pulling songs from a number of categories. According to Johnson, the show was always changing, incorporating opener songs, closer songs, warm fuzzy songs, humorous songs and what Johnson called message songs. At one point, the group's repertoire was about 75 songs, but later expanded to more than 100. It's hard to tell how many people they have now. I haven't been able to find a statistic on that, but they started with 16. Later in the 80s, they were so popular, they expanded to 32. But I I don't know how many they have today, so that'd be something interesting to find out. If anybody listening knows that, drop us a line. I'd love to know. Uh, Disney often has set the group off property to perform. One side group of singers was called Liberty Voices when they performed away from Disney, as they could not use the name Voices of Liberty off of property. So Liberty Voices was a clever disguise, I oh, suppose. Yeah. <laughs> the group also sings at the annual Candlelight Processional at Christmas time. Disneyland tradition going back to the first group of Christmas carolers who performed under the direction of USC choral director Charles Hurt in 1955, Candlelight came to Walt Disney World in time for its first Christmas in 1971. Hurt originally directed the Florida production as well, but as he got older and was less eager to travel, Disney started looking for other directors and picked Johnson. Over time, he wrote the show, directing and conducting it for 25 years. When he came aboard the event was using off the shelf orchestrations, but soon Johnson started doing his own arrangements based on the regeneration Christmas pieces, which the Voices of Liberty also performed during the holiday season. That's the good stuff. Yes. Yes. Yeah, really good stuff. I need to go back and find some of these regeneration albums from the seventies and absolutely. It's yeah. Like the root of everything. Uh, As a Disney Christmas staple, during the 1980s, the group performed in an annual show at the American Gardens Theater called Holiday Splendor. This production was immortalized on tape when it was recorded and broadcast as a special on the Disney Channel in 1987 called Holiday Splendor at Epcot Center. That show was hosted by singer Carol Lawrence. I had never heard of this show until fairly recently. I don't know how we missed it, but I just stumbled upon it on YouTube and I was like, what is this?
1: Yeah, I know. So many Epcot uh, shows. Absolutely. Just tape it and put it on air. It works. Right. Over the
0: years, the Voices of Liberty have performed for five presidents, including Nixon, Carter, George H.W. Bush, and Reagan. They even made the trip to Washington, D.C. for the National Tree Lighting at the White House, where they had a private meeting with the Reagans back in the 80s. So popular was the group that they put out their own album as the Voices of Liberty in 1984 on Disneyland Records was re-released on CD in the 1990s. Hundreds of people have sung with the group over the years, beginning with those original 16. At the start, the group was auditioning a 1,000 people a year, so imagine how much time that took. That number quickly dropped, though, because the performers tended to stick around, and replacements weren't needed as often. One such long-timer was Debbie Johnson, a former member of Regeneration and Derek's Wife, She was there for Epcot's opening day in 1982 and retired in 2015, 33 years and thousands of performances later. And man, when you see a picture of her, you recognize her because she was there all the time for 30 years. It's incredible. Yeah. I, I instantly recognized her when I saw the picture upon her retirement. Johnson said that the message of the group was what matters to us. And I hope it always will is to communicate that message of patriotism and love of country and even be a vehicle that teaches some history in a compelling and friendly way. That's a good, noble goal. That's very nice. Uh, speaking about the group's long history, she said, some people might say and have said that some of the songs are old-fashioned and they're not relevant. I think a better word than relevance is significance, because significance says that what we have is memorable, which I love that quote.
1: Yeah, Spoken like a true pro. I think about all the pe- the the leaders that would go into their little monologues during the Voice of Liberty thing. Yes, you know, it's always up to a, up to a standard in and of itself.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: When you think about America,
0: you think about. It. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely right there. I, lo- I just love that about you know more importance, than relevance, and significance because that, yeah, that doesn't go away. So that can apply to a lot of things these days. People think are, isn't relevant anyway. Yeah. While some have stuck with the group, others have gone on to spinoff groups, one of which is the independent acapella group, Vaktiv. So, I mean, at this point, they have so many alumni over the decades that the entire sort of voice industry, this this sort of world that these folks exist in, is just populated with iconic people that were members of the voices of voices of liberty right i saw one interview with johnson and they they had asked him you know how many how many alumni are there and he says you know there were uh, you know no way of really telling but there you know hundreds of people were alumni of voices of liberty and twice that many say they were members of the voices of liberty so it's a really uh, uh prestigious association i have rightly so yeah yeah So, the group has endured, performing their 15-minute sets several times a day, day in and day out, for decades. When Epcot reopened during the COVID pandemic in 2020, the group began to perform outdoors at the American Gardens Theater before moving back inside to the Rotunda in January of 2022. There were many changes following their return. Many of the group's old faces were gone, replaced with new members. The group had a new look as well. Gone were the iconic traditional costumes inspired by early American garb and in were modern-looking red and blue outfits. The repertoire has changed as well. Controversially, many of the early American folk tunes and Americana standards were abandoned in favor of numbers from Disney animated films. You can always undo that. Yeah, as long as they're there, the repertoire can change, you <laughs> yes. know, one way or the other. You know, right. nothing is lost as long as they're still there. Thankfully, some numbers from our collective past do remain. And the group is still there entertaining guests just as they did in 1982. So the next time you're in the park, make sure you arrive early for your showing of the American adventure and grab a bench along the lobby's wall. You're in for a performance that is now part of a tradition going back more than 40 years.
1: Well, that wraps up our episode on the American Adventure. Michael, although we've talked about this theme so much, it feels good to, to tackle some American adventure. That feels like some fruit that's been on the tree for a long time. Absolutely. I mean, we talked about its early development, but hadn't
0: talked much about the thing itself. So, you know, I think that's the fun part about doing all these Epcot shows that we've been doing in a row now. We've really talked a lot about the early development, but and a lot of them haven't actually gotten around to talking about the attraction as it was built. So there's plenty of room to backtrack. There's always avenues to explore when talking about these things. It's such a rich subject.
1: Absolutely. And uh, thank you all for listening. It's been a real pleasure to think about. You know, this attraction has kind of been in my top ten for decades now and it just still stays there i really love it even just talking about it makes me feel like i'm there it's a real blood pressure lower isn't it it I'm is there. it
0: is and you know people people joke about it being you know like it is as the law as a long epcot attraction it and universe of energy are the ones that i feel people always joked about like being a nap location mm-hmm. and i mean i i will admit there are many times i've been in this show and have, you know, after making my way around the promenade and getting in the air conditioning and it's hard to keep the eyes open, but that is not out of disrespect to the show. It's out of no. my own no, like no, feeble, no. <laughs> feebleness, but uh, right. it just goes to speak about just the relaxing atmosphere of this theater, the, the comfort food level of the show. And it's... Um, yeah, it's uh, at this point, it's just so sort of familiar and beloved and, you know, you just go in and settle in and enjoy
1: it. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, as per always, we're not done talking about the American Adventure. There's still chance to hear more about us uh, chatting about this ride and the rest of the stuff on the podcast. Michael, if somebody wanted to find out more, what would they need to do? Absolutely. Well, it's
0: funny you mentioned that because just last night I was pulling images, old images, and some video for our upcoming Patreon live stream, which will be about the American Adventure. If you join our Patreon, you can sign up for early access to our episodes, get some special Progress City swag in the mail, get access to our show's uh, Discord, which is a lot of fun. Uh, that's just started mm-hmm. recently. Get access to some old, um, you know, disney document library sort of fun things and of course our monthly live stream where we take a look at old video and old pictures and have just a really great chat with some great people uh you know once a month it's it's a lot of fun last
1: month was really fun i really enjoyed that we did journey into imagination it was it was great fun it was a lot of fun and we you know continue to find little things here and there and wacky uh videos to go down. So it's both informative and funny and good uh conversation in the chat. So yeah. Uh if I wanted to join, how would I do so? Well you would go
0: to patreon.com progress city USA to sign up. Your donations are of course
1: tax deductible. So we'd love to see you there. Join in. Yeah, please do. We thank those who have supported us. And again, thank you all for listening. Uh, Michael, we've got more a little bit more Epcot left uh, to talk about in this series, well, what's going on next? Well, we are
0: we're going to be talking to some people who were involved creatively in Epcot. Uh, I don't know if that'll be next, just because uh, we haven't recorded them yet. But uh, we have some great people in the Hopper that you're really going to want to hear from. That's going to be really exciting. Also, we're going to talk about some Epcot music. You know, Epcot had that legendary soundtrack album that came out back in, I guess it was 1983 when it dropped
1: and man,
0: that's, that's a great album.
1: Yeah. It's one of the best and I can't wait to get into some of this music. We've hinted at some of the great songs throughout this, uh, but to be able to go through it on that album will be a real treat. I'm looking forward to it's, it's a crucial part of the atmosphere. Uh, Involved in the creation of Epcot and the implementation, I mean, the experience, it's, uh, the music was a ton of original music for this park.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, really for the first time ever, where they did a whole park soundscape all at once and sort of from the ground up, not a lot of needle drop stuff in there. And just everything from the attraction themes themselves to the background music throughout the park. It's just all really extraordinary. So look forward to doing that. If you know, if to prepare for that, you can go back and listen to our, we did a two parter on the soundtrack of Disneyland of the magic kingdom in, uh, a few years ago. So you can go back and listen to that, but yeah, we're going to talk about some of that Epcot music.
1: Can't wait for that. Um, so yeah, please check us out on Patreon. Uh, if you want to email us, our email is podcast at progress you can reach us on Twitter for now. Uh, Michael's at USA, and I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. Uh, we'd love to hear from you any, you know, Epcot memories you have, anything about the American Adventure that you loved, anything you'd like to hear from us coming up. You know, at some point, this is going to wrap up uh, talking exclusively about Epcot. So we're always looking for suggestions and ideas and stories that you have. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. We got that big 100th anniversary coming
0: up. We've got to talk about that. So, that's right. We'd love to hear what you'd like to hear.
1: Absolutely. So, we will see you soon uh, with a little bit more Epcot for now. From all of us to all of you, we wish you well, and we will see you soon.
2: now it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks Thanks for for joining joining us. us.
1: listening to the Progress City Radio Hour created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com We're also on Facebook and Twitter at ProgressCityUSA If you want to contact us please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it
2: Progress.